0: So um, today uh, I was inspired to uh, talk about faith and works as that has just been an issue in my life that I struggled with my whole life through my testimony and um, this faith and works is going to be tied into some of the history behind Martin Luther and the Roman Catholic Church and how that debate historically correlates to what appears to be a contradiction within the book of James and the book of Romans with respect to uh, faith and justification and how that relates to the order of salvation. Uh, but first, I just want to just cite a few references that I used to develop develop the content of this presentation. I initially met with Pastor Steve uh, uh, and asked some questions about the Book of James, which then inspired me to uh, uh, do a little bit more digging. And I feel, I came across more content between um, uh, uh, Charles. I found some more information on uh, from Charles Spurgeon and some commentary. Uh, uh, Martin Luther, and some commentary from him, and then I came across uh, uh, Sproul, and Sproul had some really good information on this whole James and Romans um, uh, debate, if you will, or some kind of what appears to be a contradiction on the surface, so I'm going to open up by reading a Bible verse to all of, to all of you today, if you would just open up your Bibles to Romans 4, Romans chapter 4, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 5 to open with today. Romans 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul writes this What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so, as we uh, like, as a brief introduction, I think it, I think it's important that we understand that what what produces a saving faith in Christ. Where does where does faith come from? And if there's a if there's a phrase that that captures. The very essence of Reformed theology, it's regeneration precedes faith. And that is the power of faith, the power of believing, is a result not of an act of our will done independently, but it's the fruit of God's sovereign act of changing the disposition of our hearts and giving unto us the gift of faith. And so this is our faith. We are the ones who believe, but we don't, we don't create that faith. Faith is, faith is born out of the immediate supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit, quickening us from spiritual death and giving unto us the gift of faith in our hearts. Now, when Paul gives the abbreviated list of the order of salvations in Romans chapter 8, later on, he talks about those who were uh, foreknown, that he also predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And so, um, calling in this sequence or this logical order of salvation is what we talk about with respect to regeneration, the effectual inward call of God, which brings us to a faith that is a living faith, which is key for this meditation and through which and and by which we are then justified. And so understanding, when we we try to understand this logical order, you know, as as compared to this this immediate supernatural work of God, it's important for us to understand that the second, the very second you have faith, you are counted righteous by God, and um, you're covered in the robes of righteousness of Christ immediately. There's no, there's no time left. Yet we say, yet we say um, we are justified by faith, and when we say that, we're saying that faith precedes justification in terms of its logical order, and so it's. Re- This needs to be applied here to uh, uh, really work through this issue today between James and Romans and uh, to really understand the concept of justification before God and men. And so, one second. I'm going to back up and give a little history between uh, Luther and the Roman Catholic Church. Um, At the time of the Protestant Reformation... The Roman Catholic community didn't just roll over and play dead at the feet of Luther and the reformers. They had a they had a response to the assertion that justification was by faith alone, without any without any reference to works. And they found their source for that in Scripture, and primarily in the Book of James. And which, which portion I'm going to cite for you in one moment. And this portion was uh, uh, cited at the Council of Trent uh, by the Catholics in response to the Protestants and. So as I read through James 2, verses 21 through 25, reflect back to what I opened with in Romans with what Paul said. James 2, 21 through 25, James writes this, "'Was not Abraham our father justified by works "'when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? "'Do you see that faith was working together with his works, "'and by works faith was made perfect, "'and the scripture was fulfilled that said, which says Abraham believed God, "'and it was accounted to him for righteousness.' And he was called the friend of God. So you see then a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Later on in verse 25, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them another way? So here we have an explicit statement in sacred scripture that a man's justified by works and not by faith only. Um... You would think that this single verse would have been the crushing blow to this whole debate between Romans and James and faith and works. Um, and especially the article upon, uh, that, that Luther said was the article upon which the church would stand or fall. So this, this was a very significant issue. So with that said, how do, we, how do we reconcile with what Paul teaches in Romans and what James teaches here? And so some people think that it's an impossible task, that uh, the two are simply irreconcilable. Uh, by the way, there was a debate historically as to um, which epistle appeared in print first, James or Romans. And um, um, that question focused on an attempt to understand how this this difference could could arise in the in the pristine church. And so some people were were arguing Romans appeared before James, and James wrote his epistle to repudiate and refute what what Paul had taught, and others were like, no, James came first, and Paul was trying to refute James. And so there was a divided house on this question historically as to who was trying to refute who, but classic orthodoxy would say that neither was trying to refute the other and that the two positions are not contradictory, though on the surface they appear to be. Part of the problem was compounded by the fact that both James and Paul uses the same word here for justification, the Greek word dikeasuni. And um, uh, you would hope that they would have used different words or obviously had different ideas in mind. But unfortunately, if we're reconciling the two, they use the same word here. Um, To make the situation even more muddy or more problematic, both of them uh, use the same person as a reference or an example to prove their point. So Paul argued that um, Abraham, being the father of the faithful, was justified by faith, Uh, encountered righteous before he'd done any works, before he had um, uh, been circumcised, or before he had offered Isaac up on the altar. So Paul had Abraham justified in chapter 15 of Genesis, where James doesn't have Abraham justified until chapter 22, which is the chapter that records his son Isaac being offered up on the altar. So tagging on to this history, this is one of the reasons why Luther challenged the canonicity of the book of James. When I met with Pastor Steve, this is what led me to try to investigate this a little bit more. This is at first when James called, or uh, Luther called the book of James an epistle of straw, or a right straw epistle is another phrase he used, but which he later repented of that judgment. But because at one point he did challenge the canonicity of James, uh, several scholars tried to use that challenge as an attempt to show that Luther didn't truly believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, he did believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, he said Scripture never errs, but he was questioning whether Scripture contained the book of James, and that's going to have to be talked about on another day. It's a deeper dive. So, in the sense that, uh, so we can see, excuse me one second, But, okay, in any case, we can see that in Scripture, that both James and Paul use the same word here for justification, because that word does have more than one meaning. And so, if we look to a Bible verse that I think we're all familiar with in Luke chapter 7, verse 35, where Jesus makes the statement that, that wisdom is justified by her children, and that statement by Jesus is simply showing that that which is a claim to be wisdom is shown to be true wisdom by its fruit, which is a principle of wisdom found throughout wisdom literature of scripture. So in the sense, in the way that Jesus used it here, that wisdom is justified by her children, that term justified there means to demonstrate or to manifest the truth of something. And so I'm going to give a, a poor example here but if I was to say to you all today that I could type a thousand words in one minute I would expect that you wouldn't believe that you'd want to you'd want to see it to believe it and um, in fact the only way that I could prove that statement to you is to give you all stopwatches get out an old antiquated typewriter for you know I think all of us older know what a typewriter still is (laughs) but and then I'd have to crank away a thousand words, and you'd be wise not to believe this. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here, there's a sense in which the word to justify is used to prove the truth of a claim. Earlier in my professional career, I used to, um, I used to raise capital for, um, from private equity firms, and excuse me. And, um, excuse me. and uh, part of that, part of putting that together, would be put, compiling a bunch of different information, and um, um, putting together financial statements, five-year projections, industry data, historical data. And um, I would go and make these pitches to these sophisticated investors to try to raise money for these startup business. One of the most difficult things to do is to get somebody to open up their checkbook and write a check and um, um, put it into a new upstart business. And so <clears throat> I wasn't very good at it, but one, one of the investors at this particular investment firm um, uh, was kind enough after three or four attempts bringing three or four different businesses to him, I couldn't raise a dime. He said he pulled me aside. He says, Barry, listen, you present well and have a lot of good content, but to understand the philosophy of an investor's mind, you have to kind of capture his attention up front by answering these questions. What problem is this business trying to solve and what and why? And if you could grab that investor's attention up front with supporting with this back back end material that you have, you would give yourself a better chance to, to allow the investor to make an intelligible decision whether he wants to move forward in that particular investment. So I kind of want to use this principle here with this thorny relationship between James and Paul. And so to, in order to capture or in order to understand James in chapter two here, we have to ask those questions up front. What, what problem is James trying to solve? What question is he trying to answer? And as I was researching scroll. Um, in in digging through this this debate between James and Romans, he said that he felt the answer to these questions were found in verse 14 of chapter 2, where James writes this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So the question he's asking here is, what good is it to make a profession of faith if you don't have any works? What profit is there in that? So the question he's dealing with is for people who make professions of faith and don't manifest any fruit of it. So today, in in this day and age, there's millions of people in America alone who make professions of faith but don't ever demonstrate the reality of the faith they claim to possess. And so that's the question James is answering here. That's not the same question Paul's asking. Paul's asking how can an unjust person stand in the presence of a just and holy God? His concern for justification is before God. And that's where Paul goes on to say that we are justified by faith apart from the works of law. But now James is saying, what about the person who makes a profession of faith and has no evidence of it? Again, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? What good is that? And then after this illustration... James goes on to say, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so now James is going to be be making a distinction between a faith that is alive and a faith that's dead. And so when Luther was uh, challenged for his doctrine, doctrine of justification on faith alone and was asked about that faith, and does that just mean you can make a profession and say you believe and go on and live however you want to? Well, Paul answers that same question in Romans and says, God forbid... And then Luther goes on to say that justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. He then goes on to say that the faith that justifies, Luther said, is a fides viva, a living faith. And you'll know that faith is alive because that faith will certainly manifest itself in the fruit of obedience. And so as I was... Studying through this scroll content that really helped me understand this, he gives two very good examples of what I want to share with you, and I'll just put myself in his words and how he said it, because um, it really just was the, clink, the, the light, light bulb going off in my head. So if I were to say to you all here today that I have a saving faith, would you all know that I have it for sure just because I said it? Can anybody in here read my heart? Of course not so the only way that you can evaluate the truth of my claim is to see if I manifest it in my life by their fruits you shall know them we are told and even then there's that phony fruit or fake fruit or rotten fruit I think I've heard Pastor Steve uh, give an example of like Joel and Victoria Osteen I mean that's just I mean when you look at that brand and that message it just doesn't feel right something's not right in the eyes it just it's it's rotten fruit now How long does it take God to know whether my profession of faith is genuine? Can he read my heart? And so he doesn't need to wait two weeks, two months, six months, a year, seven chapters to know whether my profession of faith is genuine. And so this is critical in answering the problem here that though James and Paul appeal to Abraham to make their case, they appeal to Abraham at different times in his life, again, Paul makes his point that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law by pointing to chapter 15, where Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. James makes his case that, or James makes his case that Abraham was justified by works by pointing to chapter 22, seven chapters, obviously, and uh, which also is the chapter that records Isaac again being offered up on the altar. So now when James goes on to say that, that Abraham is justified by works, is he saying that Abraham is justified in the sight of God? Or is he saying that Abraham is being justified in the sight of men before whom people make their profession? And so... Um, it... Uh, Sorry, one second. just lost my train of thought. So again, the question he's answering is, if a man says he has faith but has not works, if a man says he has faith but has not works, can that faith save him? And the answer he's giving here is absolutely not. And so the only type of faith that saves is is not a dead faith, but a faith that is alive. And if that faith is alive, it's certainly going to manifest itself through works. And so Abraham is proving, demonstrating, authenticating his profession of faith in chapter 22. And so, just as we make our professions of faith, we must show forth our faith by our works. And so, here we have just kind of wrap this up two men answering two different questions using the same word and the same example, uh, where James is is showing Abraham's being vindicated by his professions of faith by the works that follow. So I hope that that brief summary helps you kind of work through because this was a serious issue for me, a lot of backsliding in my life to work through the faith and works and this issue between James and Romans and what it truly means to live an obedient life and it inspires me to want to live a, an obedient life to, to Christ because obedience is works. It's hard, right? And uh, I hope that inspires you all to take a look in the mirror and when you lay your head on the pillow at night that you think about your obedience to the Lord and we all, we all backslide to some degree, but you know, we're going to partake in communion today and we need to think about what our Heavenly Father has done for us and that should inspire us all to be as obedient as possible. And so, I mean, it's crazy. So we, we opened up with a hymn today that was referencing Psalm 51, and um, it's just, I just started smiling because I want to. I was that's part of I was going to wrap up with Psalm 51 today, and um, it's a perfect psalm. It's a beautiful psalm, relevant to both types of justification. And as I read through Psalm 51, uh, I hope that you all can reflect on your own need for Christ and justification before God and men. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, God. I'll have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth. In the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... How, how perfect and beautiful is our Heavenly Father. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening.